today we have another of our podcasts, which which has come from the 2023 Pediatric Critical Care Medicine Conference in Edinburgh. Um, and we're talking today to uh, David Cooper, who works in Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Um, welcome, David. Um, would you like to um, to introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is uh, David Cooper. Uh, I'm a pediatric cardiologist and cardiac intensivist. I work at Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital. Currently, I serve as the medical director of the Heart Institute at Cincinnati Children's and the medical director of the cardiac intensive care unit. Um, plus, you're also president of the PCICS, is that right? Yes, I am currently the president of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. Is that a national one or a, a global one? We it's it's the it, we think of ourselves as as a global organization. Uh, we strive to be more global every day. Uh, it's one of our initiatives coming up over the next 12 to 24 months is uh, trying to develop uh, a footprint with our local colleagues across the uh, across the world, kind of in a similar way that ELSO did. So we're looking to develop uh, pediatric cardiac intensive care society chapters in Latin America, Europe, uh, Asia Pacific, uh, Middle East, India. So we're going to work hard with our local uh, colleagues there, figure out what's needed, uh, how to best um, collaborate with existing systems. Uh, and that's going to be a big initiative for the next uh, one to two years. Sounds amazing. Um, so so during the conference in Edinburgh between whiskey taking and Scottish country dancing, uh, you, you talked to us about uh, high reliability teams, shared decision making and innovative care in ICU. It's a great talk. It's really entertaining. Um, lots of ups and downs and f- food for thought between the entertainments. Um, having a good team is obviously a cornerstone of what we do. So um, can you d- d- describe to us a few of the things which you've done, which which make this teamwork better? Sure, I, I'd be happy to. Um you know, everybody strives to have uh, high reliability teams, and that's where, you know, the team functions at, at a level um, and all great teams are greater than the sum of their individual parts. What we what we try to do is, you know, when you work in a cardiac intensive care unit, a, a lot like a PICU, but particularly in, in a cardiac intensive care unit, as I, as I said, you know, we're the largest collection of A-plus personalities in the smallest amount of space, right? Everybody's really smart, so, and every everybody knows what to do except when we don't know what to do. And so, you know, how can the team function together to create that level of situational awareness around how patients are doing and how we can perform better um, as a team? And, And I think that really all revolves around, you know, when a patient deviates from normal convalescence, how do we recognize that quickly? How do we recognize it not just as individuals, but as a team? And how do we rally as a team and come together around that patient to deliver the care needed to return that patient to uh, to normal recovery? Because as we know, the longer you wait and the longer they are deviated from normal recovery, the harder it is to rescue them. And and ultimately, you know, those patients that are uh, that are not rescued um, end in cardiac arrest. And certainly for our patient population, as we published a number of years ago, um, of those that experience cardiac arrest in a pediatric cardiac intensive care unit, 50% of them die. So it, it has the, the, the stakes are high, even though the incidence is low, you know, the stakes are high, you know, once it happens. So some of the things we've done, you know, around this uh, or, or typify this is, 
is when we were part of the collaborative through the Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Consortium, or PC4, around prevention of cardiac arrest. And what we did as one center of, of, of many uh, was institute a series of um, team behaviors uh, that would improve patient outcome. When we went about doing this, you know, it was designed based on work that had been done at, uh, at Alabama, uh, uh, Birmingham by um, uh, Alabama Children's by Jeffrey Alton, and some of the work that we had done here at Cincinnati Children's with Dave Nelson uh, and others uh, around trying to identify the highest risk patients and, and what to do for them. And, you know, none of these things were around a miracle drug. There was no new drug that was introduced. There was no new technology. It was all about enhancing the performance of the team around communication. How do we specifically identify how patients were going to decompensate? What did that look like? And what we're going to do specifically to intervene to try to embolden the team to take action quickly. And so that related to very specific instructions around blood pressure and heart rate and, and central venous pressure uh, and you know rescue dose epinephrine. And we experienced, just like many other centers did, a, a marked reduction in cardiac arrest. So, you know, um, no CPR is better than good CPR. Uh, and that was just typical ways around how you could come together as a team, uh, collaborate as a team, uh, identify high-risk patients, um, escalate concerns, and mitigate, you know, um, abnormal behavior or abnormal physiology in a way that resulted in, in, in a better outcome for patients. So is that's kind of, sorry. Can I ask you, I mean, is this primarily a product of A-plus personality, or is this also lack of leadership in that organization? Um, I, I think that... It's kind of a you, so what happens when you get a bunch of highly talented people together, everybody has in like, oh, I knew that was going to happen or I knew that was going to happen. Well, if you knew it was going to happen and they didn't. So another member of the team didn't. Then that is a lack of leadership. Right. So uh, and sometimes we guess wrong. You know, we come to a conclusion based on the data that's presented to us. Right. You know, you have to identify uh, mitigate and escalate, right? And sometimes when you take that piece of information, you interpret it in the wrong context because you don't have all of the data. So when we do this kind of situational awareness, instead of it being individual, I know what I'm looking at. I know how to interpret it. I can predict what's going to happen. We turn that I into a we. And when you turn that I into a we, it becomes very much more powerful because we're always the smartest person in the room until we're not. And some of that just comes from it wasn't that we weren't smart, just we didn't have all the information. And so I, I think some of it is be, is we we are we become so good at what we do that we forget that we can be wrong, and that's an individual problem. And sometimes it, it's a team leadership problem that we always assume that the physician has to be the leader in that. But I will tell you that it doesn't. I, I work with some great bedside and charge nurses, and they're usually the ones that are and nurse practitioners. They're 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 leading the call out. You know, they're saying, hey, wait a second, you know, that's not necessarily true or hold on. I know we said it was it was it was this this morning, but this doesn't look like that anymore. We need to come back around again and, and, and take a look at the patient. So I think it can be a, a combination of both. That's really good to know. So how do you how do you change the I into we? Because it's difficult, isn't it? Um, we're used to a pretty hierarchical team structure. Um, a phrase I use sometimes on my world rounds is that, you know, when I'm listening to everybody and I specifically ask everybody, but then I also say, 
you know, it's not a d- democracy because responsibility rests with me. So so I make it clear that this is a benign dictatorship. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a listening dictatorship. But at the end of the day, someone has to make the the final call. Now, almost always I go with the with the team, but sometimes I don't feel that that's the right thing, and I need to make that call. So how how do you change the I into we? You know, I think there's different models of 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 democracy. One of, one of my favourite words is hackistocracy, which is leader by the worst possible. Which uh, yeah. we can talk about politics with that. Um, how do you make it? Because dem- a democracy is also not quite right, is it? Yeah, yeah. I I um I refer to it as a limited democracy. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, if if we're going to do something, I don't give people a choice. We are going to do it. Now, how we do it, everybody gets a voice in that because I'm not I'm not the expert in how we're going to do it. I've as a leader of a program have decided we're we are going to do this after I've done the listening and try to understand, you know, the pros and cons. Once I've made the decision as the leader, if that's within my purview to do that's again limited democracy. I'm not asking you whether we're doing it or not. We've now made that decision. Now, how we do it, that everybody's got to be at the table for that because that that is a we uh, for sure, you know, without a doubt. Now, how you turn eyes into we's is challenging. I mean, it is a it is one of the the last barriers that we have to continue to work to break down because, like I said, it wasn't like in this cardiac arrest reduction initiative across, you know, 16 centers. It wasn't like we introduced some new drug, new technology, new, um, new, new methodology. All we did was teach people how to listen better, how to be specific, how to, how to, how to sh- have shared situational awareness. And with that alone, we had a, a marked reduction in cardiac arrest. So. I think it's got to become part of the culture. You have to work at you have to work at doing it. And, you know, and I do think I'm, I'm the same way in that, you know, if there's multiple ways to do something, you know, what I talked about a little bit was we had codified these kind of decisions in a level one, level two, level three. So like, like, like level one decisions, it doesn't really matter. Like, for example, you want to you want to you want to diurese somebody, whether you use intermittent Lasix or a continuous infusion. I don't really care if the team wants to use one or the other. And even if I prefer one or the other, it doesn't matter. I let them do it because that way they feel empowered and uh, and, you know, you don't need to override them for things that don't matter. This is when someone wakes me up at three o'clock in the morning to ask whether one's 70 or 80 percent fluids on that. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Correct. And but they they may not matter to you and I, but they very much matter to the people that that are making the decision. So empowering them to make that decision is very powerful. And I think we underestimate how important it is to do that um, because it feels they feel have like they have autonomy. And I I suppose the other thing is not to denigrate them. Uh, Yes. The other thing, isn't it? Because you find that if you denigrate them, you sort of say, oh, my God, you don't know what to do. They immediately get very disillusioned uh, within the, the team itself. So I think that's an important bit, isn't it? Yeah, yeah no, it's very important. And I think that it is um, it, it is it is key to maintaining their their ego and not ego in a bad way. Um, but but, it, but, in a good way. but then we also need to with that, we need to factor in how much space the patient has to worsen and the space to worsen concept is, is important. So with a relatively stable patient, I sometimes say in the ward round, right, I want the midnight balance to be minus 400, right? Yep. And then, and this is now your call, just just sort it. I don't I don't mind how you do it. Just, yep. I want that number to be minus 400. Yep. And they go, oh, but I don't know which way. Well, 
you know, that's fine. Because I'm confident that for that patient, whatever they do, they can't really break the situation much. Um, so space to worsen is important. As the space yeah. to worsen narrows, as that gets smaller and smaller, then my control gets tighter. Right. Well, I think that depends on I, your point exactly is correct. Depends on if, if it matters how it's being done, uh, then I am a bit more prescriptive. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you almost never need to be that way. I think it's not. It's just not necessary. And then, you know, we say, OK, well, the next level up is level two decisions. And those are where, well, I think it does matter, but I'm not sure. And that's the key part. So, for example, the patient needs to have a little bit more SVR. So are you going to give them norepinephrine or vasopressin? I might have a, a, a preference for one or the other. Uh, and, you know, I'll say, oh, you know, and, and most times I'll let, OK, well, let's you if you want to use norepinephrine, that's perfectly fine. Let's reassess in 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And if we haven't achieved the goals that we wanted to, well, then we're going to switch. And that sets some clearly defined uh, targets and thresholds for deciding whether or not the therapy that's in question is or the strategy that's in question is correct or not. And that, again, is also very empowering because, you know, people, you know, um, people feel engaged, you know, by doing it. And and then the level three, which are the least frequent decisions, is where, you know, you got to really defer to expertise and, you know, you're going to politely and, and and respectfully tell somebody, look, we're going to do it my way. And that, you know, some like going to go back to the operating room and, and uh, for a residual lesion. You know, if the surgeon says, you know, look, I'm not taking them back. I can't make it any better or I'm taking it back. He just he just needs a valve. Like, OK, I, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to defer to you on this. You were in there before and, and we're going to do it. And if you don't get the first two levels right, then it's really hard to get the last level right. And then that is about team culture. But what happens, David, when the irresistible force, which is you, meets the um, immovable object, the, the surgeon? And what happens when two people of equal seniority experience are both at, at level three, but opposite? Um, you know, it, it happens. Uh, we Ultimately, we, we, we either talk it out. You know, and and again, the more gray hair you get, and I've got a fair amount of it now, you the less you realize that you're 100% right all the time. It, it just is not. It just you just aren't. And when you behave like you are, the first time you're wrong, people always remember. You know, and so and and if we can't work it out at the local level, then we go to conference. We have a case management conference, and we will have them. We either either present it if it timing is right, or we'll we'll have it. We'll have a mini conference. If we're unsure of the outcome and we can't work it out, where we we're not on the same page, we go to conference, and that brings a larger group of people into the discussion. But we don't have to. Re- we rarely have to do that, especially as you build team. Like in the very beginning, when you don't know each other and you haven't built a relationship, and you don't like. like I always I tell my surgeons, hard to train new surgeons. Um, and, you know, he goes, well, it's hard to train new intensivists. That's 100 percent correct. Right. My job is to know what's going to come out of his mouth before he says it. And I do. I know when I'm going to him with something that I know he isn't going to like, I know he's not going to like it. You know, and so my job is to make the case. And if I make the case, even though he doesn't like it, you know, he'll do it. But if I haven't made the case, he tells me why I haven't and what we should do. And I say, OK, that's fair enough. And we do it. And, you know, you you kind of work through it. And. I think the corollary to what I was saying before is that, you know, people never remember when they're wrong. I mean, you never remember when you're so strident that this is what's going to happen and it doesn't happen. 
you know, oh, for sure this kid's going to die, but he doesn't and goes home, right? Well, no one remembers that part. So, you know, it, it's very humbling the more you do this to realize that you don't always know what the outcome is. Now, you might know what it is most of the time, but you don't always know what it is. And I think when the stakes are high, you have to remember that you can get it wrong. And I think if you remember that little bit of humility, which is hard in the moment, and for some people it's about saving face and, you know, it's kind of, but if you can put that aside, you, you generally will stay out of trouble because even if you make the wrong decision, like I tell people, I reserve the right to be wrong. I could be wrong. Um, you know, if you make the team to get if you make the decision together, it just works out better because everybody feels vested. And even when it turns wrong, everybody isn't really about the individual. It's about the team. How is a team? Did we come to the wrong decision here? As opposed to when people feel disenfranchised or not listened to or not part of the process. The first thing that is, how could you have made that mistake? Mm. You also mustn't forget that the wrong outcome is not necessarily the wrong decision, especially when we're, we're talking about high risk situations. You know, if it's a 70 percent to 30 percent de- de- decision, you'll always go to the 70 percent. But 30 percent of the time, the outcome will will, 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 will be poor. That's OK. Yep. That's acceptable um, yep. because you, you'd be mad to go to the 30 percent. Yeah. And that's a difficult concept to get across, isn't it? Because. We need to make the decision right, not the outcome right. Yep. I think we, you know, we go when we even when we get the outcome right, we go back and we realize, wow, we didn't really make the right decision here, but we got lucky. Um, and that that I mean, it, it 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 does happen. That's why I think making a team decision and sticking to it, right? Not tolerating bad behavior like backhaul chatter around stuff. Look, you were in the same meeting I was in. You know, we all agreed to do it, uh, but not everybody agreed. Yeah. But that's not everybody's going to agree. But as a team, we decided to do it and it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to. Uh, And I really have zero tolerance for it if you didn't speak up at all. Like if you didn't say anything during the meeting and now all of a sudden want a Monday morning quarterback this thing, that is just that is bad team behavior. um, And it really should not be tolerated. Who's the person who would turn around and castigate the person? Is it the unit chief or do you sit down as a team and then talk it over? Um, Just a single face to face. Usually we try to let have deal with individual problems individually. Right. There are systems problems that get flagged up. But if there is an individual that's a problem, it's usually the unit chief or the section chief that, you know, the, the team may say something to him or her directly during the conversation. But ultimately, I'm sure there's a follow up. Sometimes I'm the one that gives the follow up that, you know, try to counsel them or coach them on, you know, why they did what what they did was wrong in twofold. One is they were wrong not to speak up. And why didn't they speak up and make sure there wasn't something environmental or cultural that prevented them from doing so? And then why, having not spoken up, why what they did, um, you know, is doubly wrong was, you know, undermine the team by, you know, criticizing a, 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 a team decision that was made. I think the cultural aspect is quite important, isn't it? Because there yeah. are, we've noticed in our ICU as well that there are certain groups of people who just culturally, are very reluctant to talk to their superiors. And uh, it takes a long time for them to sort of get to understand that you're working as a team, everybody's equal. And once that concept of equality sort of gets established, then things become easy. But in the intervening period, you often find that they just remain silent, they don't sort of contribute. 
And often you, you get the feeling that, oh, my God, are they just not with it? But often it's just in certain cultures to talk with a senior colleague is just not accepted. Is that what you were implying? Yeah, I, I think that the language, I think, is very important because I actually don't think that everybody is equal. Everyone is everyone is not equal. There are there. There's definitely uh, and I don't think hierarchy is bad. I think hierarchy for decision making is a good thing. Uh, hierarchy for discussion and hearing everybody's point of view is bad. That is bad. When people believe there's a hierarchical system that prevents them from speaking up, that is really bad. However, it is also, I think, disingenuous to not say there there is a hierarchy. Everybody's got a boss. I mean, and ultimately in the ICU, like I'm not some I'm not the boss of the nurses, you know, but like someone has to make the decision. And that person is generally me or I have acquired or earned the responsibility to do so. And so after I've heard all the points of views, I'm going to make a decision based on what I think is the best decision based on the data that I have. And so we aren't all equal. And I think sometimes you create a bit of chaos by implying that everybody is equal because in reality, everybody's not. Because if everybody was equal, then, okay, well, then you make the decision. But nobody wants to make the decision when it's hard. It's easy, sure. Right. But when it's hard there, you know, it's it, people don't want to make the decision. And I understand why they don't. Uh, and they may not really be prepared to make the decision. But I think there is there should be a uh, um, no hierarchy when it comes to speaking up, discussing, sharing all the points of view, etc. But after that, there is a hierarchy. When I tell you to do it, the, 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 you are to do it. We've had all the discussion. We've had all the debate. I've heard you. Just because I don't want to do it the way you want to do it doesn't mean I didn't listen. It just means that's not what I've chosen to do. Now the expectation is for you to do it because the problem with not doing that, when it becomes a physician suggestion sheet and not a physician order sheet, that is a real problem because I actually didn't suggest that you do it. I ordered it to be done. And when it's not done, then there's chaos because then people just decide, well, today I want to give the chest physiotherapy. Tomorrow I don't. Today, I want to wean the oxygen. Tomorrow, I don't. Uh, you know, I, I mean, that just that can't work. That is that is bad care. And, I, and, and I'm not trying to be again, it's not a dictatorship, but there has to be authority. There has to be leadership. And that means there has to be decision making. And I think that, again, it, I, I'm choosing my words carefully because it is really important that that you create a culture of open communication but that culture also has to be one of decisive decision making. And once that decision is made, everybody's got to get on board, which means that everyone is not equal. It is. And, and you know, it, it was, well, it's easy for you to say because you have gray hair and you're the boss. Yeah, but I have a boss, too. You know, it's not it's not like no one is without a boss. Even you say, OK, even the CEO of the hospital has a boss. It's called the board of trustees. Right. You know, everybody's got somebody that they report to ultimately in, in some way. And uh, and the board of trustees of the hospital is culpable to the people of the city. Right. It, it's not it, it gets a little bit blurry sometimes, but it's not um, there has to be, I think, a chain of command. Uh, it can't be um, it can't be oppressive. It can't stifle discussion and, and commentary and criticism. I think a team that argues that has dissent is is great. I think gr the greatest teams have arguments and dissent and debate uh, and disagreement. 
If you can't find a way to do that as a team, then you are you cannot be a highly functioning team because all great teams have debate. We don't. It's easy again when you know what to do because it's the decision making is easy. But when you've got a you know a, a tiny baby with a clot in the heart and you know are you going to do a th- mechanical thrombectomy? Are you going to use TPA? Are you going to you know? Uh, I mean, if you know what to do, great because none of us have a lot of experience doing it. So we're going to debate it. We're going to discuss the pros and cons, and then a decision is going to be made. And then once that decision is made, everybody's got to get on board with doing it. Because if you don't, then you've got chaos. Harry Truman, doesn't it? I think that was what he believed in, wasn't it? The buck stops at his doorstep, effectively. So at the end of the day, you as the the boss of the unit, sometimes you have to sort of accept the fact that you are the one who's going to make the decision. Yeah. I don't want to make the decision if I don't have to. And I only want to make the decision when I have all the necessary data. So I need everybody to speak up. I need people to you know speak truth to power. I, I If there is data that's out there, everybody's got to, and I really, I don't get angry about many things, but that is one of the things that I get quite angry or disappointed about when somebody doesn't speak up. I mean, you know, and in fact, I specifically call it out. I said, look, the only way I'm going to be mad here is if somebody doesn't speak up. So if somebody has a point of view that we should listen to or has concerns about what we're going to do, please do tell me um, because I want to know. When you do that, generally people will speak up. And again, if I don't go with a decision that I, I can, you got to read the room, right? When you when you know they're not um, gonna gonna come along, then I think you have to um, you have to be a part of what's going on. Yeah, you, you have you have to read the room, right? So you have to watch people's body language. When you make decisions that are uncomfortable or that not everybody's on board with, you got to watch their body language. You got to come back around to them and reassure, reassure them. And I particularly reassure them when there's no right answer. I said, look. I know you wanted to do this, but on balance, this is why we went with option B. Um, but I don't want you to think you were wrong. I just think we we believe that this is the best decision. Although, again, we will reserve the right to be wrong. So don't take it too harshly that we didn't follow what you wanted to do. It wasn't because it was not thoughtful or necessarily wrong. We're just going to have to find out together. And I think, again, that reassurance and making sure that people are heard is really important, especially when the outcome is uncertain. Very important because you, you're the person who's going to go and talk to the family about it. So, uh, again, talking, going back to the buck stops at your doorstep. And I think you have to make that decision. And if people sort of start coming and sort of making different plans, et cetera, the parents are going to be totally lost. Yep, that is the surest way to to be on the wrong side of me. When you know, when we made a decision as a team, everybody gets behind it. You might even disagree with it, and if you do, you can find me in the office outside the unit. But we, I have zero tolerance for doing end arounds with the families, uh, and it is unprofessional. Um, it is horrible for the families, you know, who are facing life and death decision making for their child. Uh, it is unacceptable, um, and there is zero tolerance for it. David, um, you love the concept of the democracy bus, okay? This is when you're, when you're waiting for a bus, and everyone gets on, and then at every seat, there's a steering wheel, and then, then every junction, everyone steers towards their house at every junction the, the, the bus will turn to the most popular direction um which ends up with no one being able to go anywhere because you just end up going in circles yep um no, and sometimes important. a chaotic ward round feels a bit like a a democracy bus we need to have a bus driver who drives us in the right way 
Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of efficient rounds. I mean, that, you know, again, you want to have people present, and especially when you have learners and, and learners at all levels, physicians, NPs, bedside nurses. Again, you want to encourage thoughtful discussion and presentation, and you have to be patient. You know, it's, it's you, have, you just have to be patient. And and it's part of a process. You know, you're, what you're doing is this is an investment. When you have a, a, a new bedside nurse or a new NP or a new fellow, you are investing in them because you could do it by yourself in a tenth of the time. What you're investing is their growth and development and then commitment back to the team and the unit and the patients. Um, and you just have to remind yourself of that, which is hard when it's, you know, stressful and and and, and time consuming and and um, uh, and uh, busy. But um, it, it is very important. And when you invest in them in that way, it it it, it pays itself forward. It just does. Um, can, can you tell us a bit more about the cardiac arrest prevention plan which you put in place? So you you showed us the conference, you showed us a sheet which you put at a bedside for patients who are at significant risk of de- de- deterioration or cardiac arrest. Yep. So it, it's part of the, the cardiac arrest prevention uh, program. Uh, we institute a bedside sheet, and that sheet, um, and this is all available if you go to if you go to pc4quality.org. Um, you can um, uh, you can find um, all of these materials because we want to share it with folks. But we created basically a bedside sheet that's posted on every uh, high risk cardiac arrest patient. It says why they're at high risk to arrest. So are they a single ventricle? Are they a medical patient that's been intubated? Um, are they a preterm neonate? Um, and other hospitals have developed other other reasons depending on their local um, uh, patient population. What they're going to arrest from? Are they going to arrest from a pulmonary hypertensive crisis, or progressive systolic failure, or uh, hypoxemia, uh, shunt occlusion? Um, and then, what are the specific steps you're going to take? So, if their blood pressure is less than this, and their CVP is greater than that, then you're going to do this. So, very drawn out things that the nurses can do right away. They don't have to ask. So, we've empowered them that if they meet a criteria in the CAP plan, they are to do it. And so it gets them the therapy right away, particularly around administration of of, of a, a, what I call an epi spritzer or, you know, an emergency epinephrine, dilute epinephrine, one to one hundred thousand epinephrine to rescue the patient. The nurses don't have to wait for us. If they meet criteria to, to receive it, the nurses push it. They call they call the team over. But before they have to wait. Now they don't wait. So they get the rescue therapy quite quickly. We also talk about specific vital signs. What's the expected heart rate, saturation, blood pressure, CVP, et cetera. And those vital signs can't be changed without a group discussion. So it, it emboldens, again, continued on group situational awareness. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it's signed off by the day team and, and the night team. And it happens, you know, twice a day. And which direction is the patient going? Is the patient getting better? Is the patient staying the same? Is the patient getting worse? Again, all in a way to communicate a global appreciation or view of the patients such that you don't have some members of the teams thinking they're really um, sick as blazes and other members of the team thinking, oh, they're doing okay. So how can you have one team, same team caring for the same patient and have a different point of view? And if I think they're sick as blazes and the fellow or NP or nurse doesn't, well, why is that? And vice versa. If I think, oh, the patient's okay, and they're all worried the patient's going to arrest from pulmonary hypertension, well, why are we not seeing the patient the same way? And use that as a as a launching point for a discussion. And 
And and when we get to the end of that discussion, oftentimes, well, not all the time, we're on we get on the same page because I learned something that I didn't appreciate that they tell me, and now I understand why they're why everyone's so worried. And or they learn something that I know that they didn't appreciate that makes them feel better about the patient. So I think it's always a, a worthwhile conversation. Are the parents involved in, the, in that assessment? Uh, so parents can be. They're present on rounds, and we have these these signs posted on their door. Parents know that their child has been made a cardiac arrest prevention uh, patient, uh, and they're present for all the discussion. So we don't hide it from them. We don't maybe specifically call them, but you know this is posted on their door. There's a sign at the patient's bedside. Their families are you know present during rounds, and here all this discussion take place. So it is definitely not hidden from them. Yeah, it's interesting because then. In the UK, we have a Pew score, early warning yeah. scoring system. And in fact, often in some units, the, uh, the scoring system is weighted towards parents' assessment because I think they are often there and they will turn around and sort of say, oops, sorry, but I think our little Jimmy is not as good. So the physiological parameters may be not as bad, but the parents' assessment may counter that. So I think... Uh, I just wonder whether your system allows for that. So we are. It doesn't allow it for the cardiac arrest prevention because it's very protocolized. But we do hear the parental voice in our assessment of the patient, meaning that when a parent, the parents are more than able to, like in our hospital, a parent, a parent can call an emergency response team evaluation. We call it a medical response team. So if they're on the ward, um, the family can activate an MRT and the MRT team comes in and sees their child. It doesn't have to be activated by a medical team member. It can be activated by a parent. Um, but in the unit, like when we're rounding, if the mom or dad are concerned, they flag it up to us, you know, and we respond. I mean, unless you're an idiot, you know, you got to respond to the parent because and again, they're not always right either. But, you know, it just never plays out well when, the, you know, what you don't want to hear is, well, I was trying to tell the team for the last six hours that he wasn't doing well. And and now all of a sudden he had a cardiac arrest and the cardiac arrest had nothing to do with what was going on for the last six hours. It had with the, the 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 nurse accidentally pushed the wrong drug. Right. So it had nothing to do. But they don't care. The way they saw it is they were speaking up for hours that there was an issue, we told them it wasn't a problem or ignored them uh, and look at what happens, what they fear to come true has come true. Again, the whole idea that when, when, when we make dramatic predictions or disastrous predictions, and they don't come true. Nobody remembers those. They only remember when when they can say, see, I told you it was a problem or see, I told you they should have been intubated sooner or say, I told you the kid needed to go to the ER yesterday. That 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 part we remember quite you know distinctly and clearly. The other parts, not so much. Um, David, there's a there's a move in the UK at the moment to put a national program where parents would be able to escalate their child's care independently on the wards. Um, you mentioned that in your hospital, parents are well, able to activate the emergency team. Um, yes. One of the concerns which has been mentioned in the UK is that there just be a huge increase in workload. And there doesn't seem to be no. the evidence behind it, though. So, no. so uh, due to that, how uh, how often do parents actually activate? I actually and, don't know And that how often is it? And how often is it inappropriate? So um, I don't know that data. When I used to see that data more routinely, it wasn't very often. 
Um, Ken Tegmar, who's one of my colleagues here, has done a lot around rescue, you know, ward MRT um, uh, code prevention uh, from a hospital perspective, and, and he might be somebody to get that data, but we have all that data from our hospital, and the burden of work is not very much uh, more than what it was before. The whole thing started when you were starting to see increased mortality around. When, when did the whole thing happen? When did your program get established? So what that is referring to is a number of years ago, so we've had the the, the cardiac arrest prevention program um, has been around probably since 2018, maybe somewhere around there. Uh, that was part of a national effort as we tried to think of a quality improvement project to do through this to, through this North American collaborative of pediatric cardiac intensive care units. What 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 that was discussion was really referring to was we've had a program here at Cincinnati that we adopted from SickKids in Toronto called the Flight Plan Program, and, and that program was aimed at looking at team performance and patient outcome. And so we used to have one score, but people had a hard time separating for what we discussed earlier about the idea that well, the team could do everything right and you can still have a bad outcome, or the team could do everything wrong and still have a good outcome. So we basically split up the team performance and the patient outcome. So the team performance was graded on a scale of one to four, three being normal performance, four being uh, extra special performance, two being suboptimal performance, and one being a never event, meaning the team really performed so hard, so badly here that we need to figure out why that happened and, and it should never happen again. And then obviously red, yellow, green stoplight for patient outcome. And we try to you know, specify things so that it could be consistent from, from week to week. So like, for example, a cardiac arrest is a red patient outcome. Um, a hospital acquired infection where the team did all the right things as per our protocol, but this, the patient still got an infection would be a yellow outcome. And so um, a, a number of years ago, um, so we had this flight plan program in place since 2016. And then a number of years ago, we had noticed a tick up in our in our in our surgical mortality, and, and people were wanted to look at why that was. So we used this flight plan program to to kind of which is a visual representation across phases of care: operating room, ICU, floor, and home, to identify patterns. And we identified two patterns that we thought were were, were tar good targets for intervention, and that was that. Um, there were patients that were deemed to be very high risk, and we kind of treated them in the same way we treated all the other patients. So, you know, it was an opportunity. We, we called this uh, program CrossCheck because we wanted to stay with this aviation theme. Uh, and that basically was was a, was a, a group, a team um, cross verification of um, performance for a patient. And so, you know, what we did was we brought extra resources for those patients. So if they were determined to be a cross-check patient, every member of the Heart Institute decided for their section what that would be, whether you're an imager or a cath doctor or a um, or an imager or an intensivist, every group decided what, what those extra resources would be, whether it be two readers of the echo, two attendings checking in on the patient in the ICU, a level of nursing experience involved in their in their immediate postoperative care. We assigned two to one nurses, you know, for, for the first 12 hours. Um, and and the second program was we what we identified was we found patients had deviated from normal convalescence uh, and we were just kind of late to picking it up. We were um, 
you know, we, when we went back and looked at it retrospectively, we were like, wow, how did we wait so long to send them to the cath lab? How did we uh, not realize they they were they were intubated for way too long? Um, and so we termed that program course correction because you know the flight had deviated from normal pathway. And we wanted to course correct back to normal. And so what we did there was we identified important thresholds for care for a cardiac, op an op you know, a surgical cardiac patient. So what their maximum amount of inotropes were um, when they were on inotropes until how long they were extubated, until they got extubated, how long they got uh, transferred to the floor and how long until they went home. And so based on our own data for these procedures, we created what we identified the 95th percentile. So, you know, these patients after an arterial switch operation, 95% of them were extubated by post-op day three. So, or post-op day two. So, you know, if they weren't extubated by post-op day three, then that, that, that was a threshold because why weren't they extubated? Because most of our patients are. And that required people to come in and provide some extra due diligence, review the case, come up with a plausible explanation as to why they weren't that way. Maybe they had preoperative pulmonary hypertension, for example. And then establish new thresholds. And then if, if that failed, then you actually have to go to our case management conference. Now, this was all in an attempt to not kind of fool ourselves, a group think ourselves into, well, it's okay. This is that way because of this. When in fact, you know, if you looked at the data, it was because we were missing something or we had an opportunity to, to change their course. And between uh, course correction and cross check, we, you know, cut our mortality down, uh, you know, by two thirds. Uh, so it was, you know, again, no new drugs, no new technology, nothing. This was all just people learning how to mitigate human behavior, how to think better as a team, how to give ourselves guardrails about, about, you know, not letting us group think our way into the wrong decision making. And do we get it right now all the time? No, of course not. But that was, that was the, and it's a lot of hard work, you know, to maintain this is like, you know, like I just got an email the other day that, oh, we're, you know, we're not getting, we're not putting in the course correction thresholds all the time for the patients in certain circumstances. Oh, damn it. And we've been doing it for, you know, two, three years. How we, you know, well, because people are human and we forget, we get new people that join us. We, you know, we get distracted by, you know, a busy unit. So it, it requires a lot of hard work. Technology would be easy because you'd implement it and it would be consistent every time. Humans are hard and it requires constant attention and work. I mean, these humans are annoying, aren't they? Because they're flawed. And uh, um, but that was going to be my question because these programs always look amazing on on paper, but keeping them implemented is really hard, especially when maybe the person who's taken it on as a project moves on or or gets a different project. Um, how do you keep it going? How do you keep that focus consistent? How do you embed this kind of thing? I think it all derives around culture. I think the team has to think it's important. Once you've can, it's like uh, the example I gave was like, would you ever imagine an operation taking place without a timeout? Like in my institution, it would never happen. I mean, you, it is, it is as sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, right? It happens. I mean, it would, it literally, I don't think it ever, never, if it happened, it would be such a four alarm fire, heads would roll. I mean, it would be, it would be unthinkable. And that's how you have to get these projects. These projects have to be um, embedded into the culture, into the system, such that they are basically 
unviolatable. And I think once you do that, they don't get violated. They they just don't. Like we have OR to ICU handoff. There would be another patient that would come back from the OR and not have a handoff. It just would not happen. And so that's the goal is to get these projects embedded that much into the the woven fabric of the unit or the system's culture. And that's what takes a lot of hard work because, again, we're human. And it's not individual dependent. It's the whole system. Correct. Even if I might forget, the nurse would never let me forget. Even if the nurse forgets, the fellow would never allow that to happen. Or the HUC or the PCA or the, you know, it, it, it is, it has to be. And again, we have to constantly work at it and flipping that switch that, you know, that, that one step from habit to, to culture is, it, that's a hard hill to get over. But once you do, it is unbreakable. And that's what we try to get. But, to, and we're not um, there yet. Uh, but these programs are much easier with a more defined and printed, predictable patient load. Yeah. So your post-op patients, they're pretty predictable. As you said, you know, post-op VSD X amount of days yep. um, or or hours. Uh, it's much more complicated in a non-cardiac PICU. I think that um, I think that's true, but untrue. I think you can make it whatever you want. If people don't want to do it, then they'll say, oh, it's too complicated, right? You know, um, uh, but I think that's an excuse. I think you can always do something. Will it be perfect in version one? No. But if you waited for things to be perfect, you'd never start any project. So the key is, is you know, um, you, you don't need analysis paralysis, right? Sometimes you just got to start doing it. And I think that, okay, you have some data, you know, okay, you expect a patient that has uh, DKA to have um, uh, reasonable control of their acidosis by this time. You have, uh, you know, in traumatic brain injury, you should stop needing, um, you should stop seeing spikes in ICP by this time. doesn't mean you will, but again, we weren't trying to get it perfect. We were just trying to get, so the idea that once we believe as a team that this this is unusual, I'll use that term, that just force functions a conversation. And that conversation is um, um, stuck in groupthink. We said, okay, after you violate enough thresholds, two of them in our case, you got to take it to the whole heart institute because now you're going to get opinions from people that that haven't had skin in the game and what's going on now. You know, they're not prejudiced by um, by by history. So they're looking at it with a fresh set of eyes and they don't care whose feelings they're going to hurt. If they think something needs to be done, they're going to speak up about it. And so, you know, how you do that in a pediatric intensive care unit does offer some challenges because it's not the same infrastructure. But I I disagree with the idea that it can't be done. If you have the will to do it and you think it's important, you can do anything. I mean, there are lots of things that we're told we ne- we could never extubate patients in the operating room. You know, we could never do uh, an operation in somebody under three kilograms. Um, we could never discharge a patient from the PICU. Okay, well, it turns out you can do all those things. Uh, you just have to decide that you want to do it, that it's better for the patients to do it, um, and uh, then get the collective will of the team to do it. Um, that, again, it's not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it isn't without challenge. What I am saying is that it is doable. Um, does every patient have a have a flight plan? Every surgical patient has a flight plan, and we're now trying to figure out what to do for our medical patients, because I do think they are an often forgotten population, and we're just trying to figure out how um, – another easy 
circumscribable group would be our heart failure patients. So now our heart failure patients are starting to develop pathways and 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 flight plan uh, criteria. That is amazing stuff, David. Um, superb to think about for anybody who does um, does intensive care. As you said, we're very much beholden to our team, and without without our team, um, we um, we're nothing. So thank you so much for talking to us. The website which you mentioned halfway through, I didn't hear the address. So if you could just yeah, sure, pc4quality.org.org. And that's if you number if number that's, four, is it? Yep. Yeah, uh-huh. Pediatric Cardiac Critical Care Collaborative, PC4. Uh, you can Google that as well. You should get there. You can reach me. Uh, I'm david.cooper at cchmc.org. So reach out to me by email. You can tag me on Twitter. Um, and if you want more information or I can help your program out in any way, we'd be happy to share what we've done. We're really proud of the work we've done. And uh, again, because I believe in, in honesty and transparency, we continue to work at it. We're not perfect. We were all the time trying to get better at doing it. But if you get the team committed to do it, um, it is it is definitely accomplishable. And all good intensive care units are nothing without their team. You know, that that is one of the hallmarks of great intensive care is great teamwork. So it's definitely worth the investment. Outstanding. Absolutely fantastic. I really, really learned so much. And I think it's one of those things that we perhaps you ought to start thinking in terms of introducing it uh, in non-cardiac ICUs. Try it and see how it works. Simple things can happen. Um, simple things can happen. Like you just got to find the will to do it. And that's getting the team on board to do it. Great. Um, that's a great message. Thank you so much, David. And um, great to meet you. And um, good luck with your next projects. Great. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks very much indeed. Bye-bye then. 